Welcome to Being the Dot. I'm your host, Dr. Stacy. Each week, I invite a guest or guests to share their experiences of being a person of color in white spaces. Today's topic, parenting your children in white spaces. We are in the middle of a racial reckoning and helping our children to manage has become an important part of the parenting landscape for African-American parents. African-American parents raising children in white spaces have a special disposition. Two recent newsworthy events that have made the national landscape is the situation about parents that highlights parents and their children. The situation in New York where the son of a jazz musician was accused and assaulted by a white woman for stealing her cell phone, which was later retrieved from an Uber. And the situation in Charlotte, North Carolina, where a young ninth grader was expelled from his school after his mother raised concerns about the school meeting in August Wilson play laced with the N-word. Today's guests are more than able to talk about their experiences of raising children in white spaces. In fact, the mother of the child in Charlotte is our first guest, attorney Faye Fox. A native of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Ms. Fox attended Catholic and private schools before graduating with a BA from Temple University's Department of Media Studies and Production. What followed was a successful career in the entertainment industry while living in Los Angeles, California for close to 20 years. During that time, Ms. Fox used her natural gift of persuasion to negotiate multi-million dollar contracts for some of the music industry's most notable recording artists. After starting a family and experiencing the legal system firsthand, Ms. Fox realized that there was much need for her to pursue the practice of law as there was a need for people like her to practice. As a single mother of two boys, Ms. Fox defied the odds and not only worked while attending law school part-time. That's some Black girl magic right there. It completed the rigorous program in just two years. Woo! Graduating cum laude with distinctive honors in provo bono service and consistently achieving the best advocate during regional competitions on trial team advocacy honor boards. Ms. Fox believes her compassion as a parent and frustration as a plaintiff has allowed her to draw on personal life experiences to form strong convictions that aid in her ability to rigorously fight for the rights of her clients, their families, and hardworking people who do not deserve to be taken advantage of as consumers. Ms. Fox is admitted to the bar and licensed in North Carolina and New Jersey, and her memberships include the National Bar Association, Mecklenburg County Bar Association, North Carolina State Bar Association, New Jersey Bar Association, the American Bar Association, and Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Our next guest, LaKendra Kenise Pruitt, is HBCU proud graduate of South Carolina State University, where she earned a bachelor's degree in civil engineering technology. After leaving South Carolina State University, Kenise has been employed by government organizations, civil, and industry. She has worked as the lead engineer for General Electric Healthcare, Simons, Stryker, and Argon. For this podcast episode, she is raising three brown babies in a very white space. She'll tell you more about this, but she affectionately has referred to them as the judge, the senator, and the scientist. Please welcome to the podcast, Attorney Faye Fox and Miss Kenise Pruitt. Thank you so much for being here. So let's let's just start. Uh, let's just get into it. Tell our audience a little bit about um, your children, kind of the ages and stages and where you are in the parenting uh, journey with them. Well, I have two boys. Uh, my oldest is 23. Um, and my youngest is just turned 15 on Christmas. And um, I would say my youngest, his, his IQ, his racial IQ is a little bit higher than my older sons because he's been able to kind of watch 
and listen and learn from what I've been teaching my older son. So I feel like he's a little bit ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. Um, Also with me, you know, I didn't um, I didn't start the racial conversations with my older son as early as I did with my youngest. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think my older son was probably almost nine years old before he realized that really, really close friends of mine that were Asian and white and Armenian, like they weren't actually related to us, you know, just because he grew up with them. And I don't think he really saw them as being any different than us until he was almost like nine, ten years old. Wow. So I really didn't have to talk to him about race. Um, in the sense that we're all, you know, there's all these different things. Now, I do feel like I protected him to a certain extent from what could have been with uh, with groups of white people. Um, you know, we went to he went to private schools, but they were black. We lived in California for the first, uh, you know, eight years of his life, so he was able to go to schools that were predominantly black, but that were also very, very good schools. So I think that's one thing that's lacking here. Uh, in Charlotte. And and really, I think every major city in the country should have a private black school. Um, So that that's like, you know, one of one of my newest missions uh, is to address education for for our our children, because I feel like they're being given a a huge we're doing a huge disservice to so many of them, dropping them in these white uh, communities and expecting them to learn how awesome they are from these people who don't don't want that message conveyed. Or who may not think they're awesome. That's right. Kenise? Well, I am Kenise Pruitt, and I have three children. Um, They range between the ages of 21 and 11. Two boys and a girl. Um, My daughter is in college, and she's majoring in um, genetics and genomic sciences. Um, And my 14-year-old, he's really... You know, he wants to be a musician. He actually wants to produce music for video games. So it's a kind of unique niche that we want to look into for him. And I'm trying to really work with him to really, you know, help his dream come true. And my son wants to be this. My youngest son um, wants to be the um, CEO of Nintendo. So... (laughs) (laughs) And he has dreamed to be the CEO of Nintendo since the tender age of four. This is a dream of his to the point where he's teaching himself Japanese and everything. So this is, I I can't wait to see what's going to happen. I can't wait. I love it. (laughs) Wow. You, You want to talk a little bit about how you started teaching them about race, race, racism and bias? It wasn't the fact of how I started teaching them because of the environment we live in. Um, mm-hmm. Where I live, it's only 1.6% um, African-American. Um, it's 70, It's 87% white here. So um, it's something that we've always had to teach our kids mm-hmm. to look out for because they have to advocate for themselves. So from the tender age of when they were young and they people would look at them and say, Oh, how cute, you know, um, don't touch my child. Um, so, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just something that we've always had to teach them. So it's not, it's not that I had to sit down with them until most recently with everything that's been going on in the treatment of others, you know, the treatment of blacks in the community um, mm-hmm. that we've had to, um, sit down with them and address issues to make sure that they truly address it because we've always done that. We've always taught them to advocate for themselves and we've always told them that um, we support them in the decisions they make and um, the comments, the responses that they get, even at school, you know, so we've always advocated for them to do that. So what what's your sense about what you remember about what one of the first um, experiences that your children had Kanis around race and racism or a microaggression and that kind of thing? As far as um, my first experience was when, you know, when the, my, my children were little, you know, um, oh, what curly hair you have and having to, you know, wanting to touch the hair, especially with my daughter, um, mm-hmm. with my oldest daughter, mm-hmm. because she has an abundance she of does. hair mm-hmm. and, um, and, 
honestly, a lot of people in this community just don't have Black friends. They do not, they don't have the exposure to the culture. They don't have Black friends. So the fact that they want to touch your hair, you know, it's something It's like, I had the teacher, you know, don't touch my hair. It's, it's not, it's hair, just like your hair. We wash it just like yours. And so those are the things and the responses that she gave. So it's just a matter of just being very direct. How did she learn that? Did you teach her that? Did you teach her what to say? Uh It was taught by example. Uh (laughs) It was taught by example. I I didn't hide. I didn't sugarcoat. I I didn't hide it from them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what about the boys? The boys, um, of course, they learned from my interactions with Sydney. Um, they always have spoken up for themselves. Some things I notice um, with schools, you know, and things that's happening in schools, I would constantly ask them about how teachers would respond to them. Um, I know my youngest had um, concerns that he wasn't being called on in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had a conversation with the teacher, you know, made sure that, you know, Liam wants to communicate. You need to call on him. Is there a reason why you're not calling on him? My kids were a little upset that I would go to their teachers and talk to them, but I didn't hide from them that, hey, I'm talking to your teachers. And because of that, the school knows me very well. So Faith, I'm sure that you can resonate with what Kanice is is saying here about um, being an advocate for your children in educational settings and in in the school, you being a known entity. Um, you want to share a little bit about that? Well, you know, I think it's interesting to say that, you know, uh, when you say that your boys knew that, 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 that you were going to go to the school, um, my kids also have that same knowing, you know, and so I think for them, uh, they have tried to work things out themselves for as long as they can. Yes, they do. Tell me because they know that I'm going to go like, on a- <laughs> um, but you know, what's interesting is I thought that I had a really strong handle and control of their experiences and I was managing their, um, you know, how people are going to treat them in their spaces when I'm not around. But since the story has come out, the conversations I've had with my oldest have literally brought me to my knees, like in tears, because there's so many things he experienced that he never told me about. Um, Mm. absolutely should have been addressed right on the spot. And so, you know, with my, with my youngest, I think that he, he, there are things that he hasn't shared with me, nothing that has been necessarily directed at him, but things that he's witnessed on the playground conversations he's been, he's overheard on campus. And it's like, you know, even with all of the mama bear protections that we give our kids and we pray over them before they leave for all kinds of Um, you know, safe travels and bring them home to me and all of those kind of things. But I think so much of what they experience on a day to day, we just don't know about, like they just don't hear everything. Um, I agree. I agree with you 100% on that. Yeah. And it's really, it's, it's kind of scary because, you know, you don't want your kids to experience certain things and there's sacrifices that we as parents are making so that they don't experience those things. And so to find out that they're still having those moments, it's infuriating. Um, and it's disappointing, you know, I, we beat each other, we beat ourselves up so much as parents, just as women in general. I just wish that there was some way that we could really, really surround them and know what's going on. But you just, there's just no way to know. Yeah, indeed. Our children are going through things, whether they are articulating them or not, that they, that things are happening, right, for them. And so part of me wonders how you inoculate your children to be able to manage and deal with this in a way that's not soul crushing. Hmm. That That's hard. I think that for me, you know, my kids are so used to me being so pro-Black, pro all the time with everything, even before the revolution, you know, this 2020 revolution, you know, they'd always be like, you always see, you always see that mom, you always say, say this about that and whatever. They always, I always point out the black part of whatever the situation is. So I don't know that, um, 
not doing, I don't think I would be, be able to go turn away from that. So yeah. they're always kind of getting something, you know? So, yeah. so now they, you know, because I've been so, you know, militant in their mind, um, they don't want me involved <laughs> in their stuff. <laughs> Especially now, you know, they got everybody telling them that, oh, your mom did the right thing, especially my youngest. I mean, he don't want to hear that. You know, I pretty much destroyed his whole way of life. You know, he's got to go to a new school. He's not happy about it. He's been in school with these kids since he was four years old. So, you know, the, he's tired of hearing people tell him how awesome I am for speaking up. <laughs> no, I really wish you had not said a word and I would have been okay, mom. You teach me everything I need to know here. So what happens in the classroom doesn't matter. And it's like, I, I, I appreciate that. It's it's not true. And also there are lessons you learn in those situations that I don't want you to have embedded in the back of your brain. And I, and I think that's what it does. And I think that's the purpose of it. So I, I just think it's important that our, my, our children don't have these experiences where they are the only one in the room, at least right. not to the extent they're made to feel uncomfortable. Because, you know, every time someone says a black person or slavery or, you know, the N word, all of the eyes just collectively land on you. And even mm-hmm. if you don't look up, you can feel it. You know, and I I just did not want my son to have that experience, which I had and still resonates with me. You know, it seems like such a small thing, but you don't forget that feeling. And so many of the people that I've heard from, in fact, I haven't spoken to one single black person who hasn't experienced that at some point and would not wish that on their worst enemy, much less their child. So, you know, I, I just think that some things you can't let slide. You know, I know that this very small thing affected me in a way that I wish it hadn't. And I don't, I don't want my kids to have that, that memory um, from anywhere. You know, you want to protect your kids from these type of microaggressive behaviors as much as you can. And I I just felt like this was something I had control over. I I have a voice as to what my son is going to learn in the classroom. If Mm -hmm. I'm not crazy about something in the curriculum, I'm not saying the school should just remove it because of me. But when you're hearing the same complaint from parent after parent after parent after parent, and you have children who are writing blogs and essays about how uncomfortable they were, maybe you should stop using those materials. Maybe you should stop doing those things. To me, when you don't stop, it tells me that you, one, you don't care. And two, there's a bigger mission here. And it can't be accomplished if our black children are not sitting in the classroom listening to their white classmates. I agree with that. Times a day. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm good with what, with the actions that I took. There are portions of it, I think, that probably could have been executed differently. But at the same time, the message would have been the same. And I think that's the problem that the school has. You know, the way you say something is one thing, um, but what you're saying should is typically the same. And I feel well, like- and, and I think white supremacy really um, seeks to police the way that we respond to it. That's absolutely true. And of course, once a black woman opens her mouth, she's automatically this horrifyingly intimidating monster who can't be satisfied or or quelled. And, you know, this whole angry black woman um, narrative that they have to give us every time we speak, it's it does make us, I think it makes us angry. It makes me angry that I can't have an opinion without it being rooted in some type of intimidation. You know, mm-hmm. just because I'm expressing discontent with something you're doing doesn't make me an angry black woman or exactly. black exactly you know mm-hmm. well you are angry and you're still black so um yes and but so- i also have the full capability and ability to speak to someone professionally mm-hmm. in a way that's Absolutely. not offensive mm-hmm. i'm not screaming and hollering but just by virtue of what i'm saying to you how mm-hmm. dare i say these things to you you don't appreciate hearing these things from my black mouth my female mm-hmm. face and so now I'm the angry, crazy, loud black woman that you you don't want to deal with, you know. Which is white fragility at its finest, of course. Absolutely. Which is another term that nobody white wants to hear. You're not supposed to say these things in certain spaces. I didn't get that memo. Um, we're, we're adults here. We're in the middle of an actual televised revolution that you don't have to refer to in a history book. We're living it. And, and you're still sitting here making these 
inward arguments to me about why it's okay to say these things in my son's presence. It's not. And you're you teaching these little white kids, these little privileged white kids, that it's okay in certain spaces to use the N word is going to get their asses beat. Because I'm telling you that if anybody uses any variation of that word in front of my son outside of the classroom, which since you're trying to push it in the classroom, it's going to be a problem. So when I get well, it, it not, and you know the the thing is that it inoculates them to the word. It kind of. That was it. Yeah. There's a systematic desensitization to it. Like when the word is used, you should be uncomfortable, period. And not in this kind of lulling of a warm bath in a way that we do with a frog and we cook blue crabs right. that, um, it, that 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 ought not to be the case. Standard. Yeah. So, Kanise, part of the question was, how do you help your children? How do you try to inoculate them or um, prevent them being impacted by this kind of barrage of racism? Are there things that you have done to try to help set a foundation for them um, to make it easier for them to negotiate? Like some of the things that I've done is just, um, again, lead by example so they can see how I interact with others I've made big efforts with my children as far as um, exposure, um, going to a predominantly black church, which, you know, there are few, very few around here, uh, to the point where I attend a um, a Kojic church, Church of God in Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, part of attending a Church of God in Christ is because the visible leadership of men um, in the church, I have boys. Um, and um, having that um, leadership there as well and seeing that. Um, I am also a part of the Diversity and Inclusion Committee within our school district. Um, We've had some instances here within our community where um, there was a student in one of the districts, not in my district, that posted uh, posters on... um, how to train a, an N-word. <laughs> so on how to train a nigger, really. Wow. Um, uh, yes. And how to care for them, um, which was in the school. The school did not handle that very well. That was not in my district, but my district did learn from that. We've had some instances in my district to where um, my son's soccer mate um, was posting negative information and negative things on social media as well within our school district. Um, the district handled it very um, well by keeping us informed, but it happened outside of the school. So there was limited things that they could do, but I was pleased with the way that they did handle it and start forming the diversity and inclusion committee with community members. Um One of the things that I did experience um, with my school itself when my daughter was in school, there was a question on the finals. And my daughter was um, experiencing illness in her life. So um, some of the times she could not go to school. And this was the time when she was taking a final. So she had to go make up to take her final at the school. And there was a question that falsely phrased, Blacks' income levels. So um, I immediately brought that to the school's attention, and the board literally approved that question. So that question went across all of the school districts. They pulled the test. Of course, I got an apology. Nothing was done for years until, you know, Recently, things have escalated and things were done. But the fact that the board found it acceptable to approve the question about um, the expectation of Blacks' incomes was just not acceptable at all. So one of the things that I distinctly remember you doing, Kanise, with your children is um, you called them um, the senator. And oh, yeah. Yes, yes, I do. Labels. I labeled them. <laughs> yeah, and what was the other one? The senator and the... Oh, uh, my daughter is the scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, the middle one, uh, he is the uh, senator. The senator, uh-huh. Yes. And then the youngest 
he is my um, road scholar. That's right. That's right. And so from when they were two years old, that you were calling them that. Yes. And when I refer to them on social media, um, I always refer to them and people know them as that, you know, how mm-hmm. scientists, you know. <laughs> so, um, yes, that's something that I, did. I really believe in. And it's important that I teach them through labeling. I label them. I'm giving them those positive labels mm-hmm. and um, communicating with them that way. Some of the things that I've done as well is um, exposure to uh, HBCUs. Mm-hmm. Um, not just because I attended an HBCU that, you know, you know, of course, I'm very proud attending South Carolina State University. That's right. HBCU for um, life. <laughs> <laughs> but I make sure that they have the exposure to HBCUs. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We go to homecomings. We learn about HBCUs. Part of what I've done, uh, which I've learned from my mom, is um, getting them involved in organizations. Mm-hmm. So becoming mm-hmm. a member of organizations that would promote positive, um, positive professionals, positive and teaching them and surrounding them with like-minded people is very, very important for me. Um, having them see me involved into my community is very important. Knowing that, hey, mommy's a part of this diversity and inclusion. Mommy's a part of Delta Sigma Theta sorority. You just had to say it, didn't you? <laughs> We're not even going to dignify that with a response, right? Thank you. <laughs> but being a part of being a part of Delta Sigma Theta sorority, Incorporated, and my involvement and being a part of social action. Um, one of my, the organization that um, my kid, that I'm a member of, that my kids are involved with, we have um, an uh, up the hill, um, act, on the hill activities where um, we take the kids to D.C. and they're exposed to um, the government and how the systems, how the systems run there. So um, some of the things that we do. That's so part what of what I heard you say, this, this was good. This was really helpful uh, at ease. Is, are you talking about Jack and Jill? Yes, I am. So I think I think there is something to be said for finding affinity spaces to um, to help. It's almost like feed a cold starver fever. And what I mean by that is that you're feeding Black empowerment. You're feeding positive messages to your children in a way that, or as your kids called you militant, that you saw things from that lens faith, right? That, that that you are teaching them the positive parts about what it means to be Black and who we are and what we contributed and all of those things, right? Exactly. In a way to help counteract these other messages. Exactly. When I decided to become a member of Jack and Jill, um, it's very strategic. is because my kids need the exposure. Mm-hmm. My kids don't have the exposure here. And being a member of various affinity groups um, has been very important in their development and understanding themselves. Um, when we first, you know, when you're first becoming a member, you have to attend several um, meetings and several activities. Um, so I took the kids to their first activity. And this is my, my what I remember. I said, Okay, boys, we're going in here. And they were going in there to learn about Rosa Parks. It was in February. And we were going in there into the school to learn about Rosa Parks. And, you know, they were going to show a video, read a book, have a discussion. Very excited about it. And so after we got through and they got to meet the kids and they they learned um, what they needed to learn through the modules that were provided, um, I got in the car and I said, okay, boys. What do you think? Because one thing I'm going to do is not have them involved in something that they don't want to be. I'm not going to force my kids to do that. So, so what do you think? I said, did you notice something different? They said, yeah. They said, they have our skin. <laughs> I love it. That was the, that, that just, it just, I'm like, wow. They did notice. It was like, yeah, they're our skin, mommy. They're our skin. My kids don't say black. I never taught them that. That's just something that they have taught themselves. 
they say that, you know, they're our skin or they'll say brown, but they don't say, um, they don't say black. Um, so, um, and as, as you see, I don't have a problem with saying that. But <laughs> so what, 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 what led you to that? How did you come to that? To not saying black or not having I didn't say- teach them that. That's something that they learned. I don't know. It's something that they did on their own. I did not teach them that. So when I asked them, what did they see? They said, our skin. They did not say, they didn't put a color to the skin. Interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, I was going to say that when I was younger and I found out that I was Black, you know, like the actual term, I fought it like so hard because Black in my mind was the crayon. And I'm like, but I'm not Black. So you know, I'm not black though, but I'm not black. And like, I've never seen a black mm. person, like, you know, black, the color uh, in my mind is really what stood out. It wasn't anything more than a color, a color in a crayon box. And so why are we called black when none of us are black? Um, it, it was a disconnect for me too. So I totally get a child not mm. identifying with being black because it's something I think you learn later what that it, what it means but when you just hear it as a kid it's like yeah, no I'm not black you know um and so I definitely get that um you know my kids for the longest time my youngest son and and for probably a period too my youngest son would always say that his mom was white and I'm like who are you telling people that that what do you why would you say that because in his mom because he's much, he's brown. He's dark, He's a darker child, and so he felt like we're not. Me and him are not the same. You know, he doesn't see him. So he doesn't see when he looks at me. You know, I'm much lighter than both my kids are. Are very very brown. Wow. And they definitely wow. went through phases wow. where they were like, "Yeah, my mom is. My mom is not black. Oh, my mom is not even brown. Like they wouldn't yeah. even consider me brown." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they don't realize until they get older that it's truly about culture. And mm-hmm. not about color. Faith, did you want to add anything else here before I pivot us to the next question? Do you mind repeating the question? I'm sorry. It was about you. I mean, you answered it well. You talked about ways that you, I think we were talking about ways that you build uh, a black narrative, if you will, for your children to help really um, them be able to actively resist um, the white supremacy or racist narrative or experience yeah, that think- they have. You know, with my kids, I feel like sometimes they, you know, they do think I'm too serious about things. I see, I see the the racial inequity in a lot of things that, uh, you know, other people and maybe other adults would see it just as easily as I did if they were in the room. But mm-hmm. because of my kids, they think it's just a mean thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's just, it's so important that we try to make sure that we're taking out what's going in that we don't want there. Because... Even as an adult, I find myself having to try and, you know, consciously re- rethink the way that the natural progression of the way that my thought goes sometimes mm-hmm. is not always the best way. You know, it's not I don't I don't want to just kind of like you said, be lulled into this um, this idea that these things that are OK to say, like mm-hmm. we should be shocked by some of the things that come out of people's mouths. And I think that the shock value wears off like you said, after you hear it so many times. Desensitized. It definitely yeah. does. And I, and I just, you know, I want to work harder at making sure that my kids do recognize these things on their own. Sure. So that when they're having conversations in their circles with their friends, that they're not, they're sitting there, uh, you know, unconsciously being the victim to the conversation. Right. You know, I want them to be able to speak the way I would if I was in the room. Like, don't don't say that. Don't talk about my people like that. Don't say so let that. Me, let, me ask, let me ask you, have both of you, have any of you done anything to directly teach your children how to resist or the words yeah. to use? Yeah. What, what have I, you done? I feel pressure because I have boys, you know, and I think the message to women too, especially uh, black women, single black, single moms in general is a woman can't raise a man. And mm-hmm. so I always, you know, no matter how, no matter how hard I'm trying, no matter how hard I'm trying to meet 
my own expectations as a mom, I always feel like I'm going to fall short. So I feel like I over, I try to overcompensate for the fact that nobody's expecting my little black boys to come out of this female household as a man. And so I, I try to go out of my way to have conversations with them that I think a man would have, you know, um, and it's hard because I don't know, you know, I grew up as a woman I with my mom and I, you know, I, I don't have all of this exposure. So I talked to my brother, I talked to, you know, people that I, that I trust, my cousins, even some uncles about what should be poured into them. I know what I would like to be poured into them. And I have kind of like a running joke about, you know, I want to raise men that if I had daughters, I would want them to marry. So I'm trying not to raise a couple of little, you know, <laughs> pompous little asses that we have all encountered in our dating life. You know, I feel like I just want to have, I want to raise men who can be respectful of women, who can show how to care about somebody and be thoughtful and not so selfish. All the things that I've kind of noticed in men that I don't like, I go out of my way to make sure my kids don't have that. And so, you know, when we're sitting around the house and I'm like, if they do something that I think that's going to be a problem in a marriage. I'll tell them, look, don't do that because your wife is going to have a field day with that. You know, like women do not like that. So I, I try to do that with everything, you know, um, making them aware of what works and what doesn't work with regards to racism the same way I do with regards to relationships. Because I, I would like to think that they will be able to have healthy relationships with women once they start being serious about, you know, having a life or future with someone. I just, I want to raise thoughtful human beings, but I also don't want them to be complacent in that they're worried about making someone else uncomfortable in the situation. You know, if you're in a room and you're uncomfortable with the conversation, you need to call people on it. Don't let it continue. Uh-huh. No, and uh-huh. I and I feel like I can say that because I've done that. I've yes. been in the room in the yes. middle of an uncomfortable con- uh, conversation and let it continue uh-huh. because I I didn't necessarily have a voice at that time, and I want to give my kids the voice sooner. I want them to be able to speak what they're feeling sooner than their thirties, you know, because that's how long it took me, you know. Uh-huh. So I just want everything to to happen for them. And, and, you know, cut, you want to cut down on their learning curve by giving them what you already have. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, I, I try to do that. I think parents just try to do that with everything. So race is just another one of those things. Uh-huh. And definitely, uh, you know, as, as a mom of uh, two boys, I feel like I was forced to have the conversation a lot sooner than I would had I had girls. Uh-huh. Um, even talking to my brother, my brother had conversations with my mom that I literally have never had. Um, where she was teaching him how to behave in the presence of the police. I don't think I've ever had a police behavior conversation with my mom. You know? mm-hmm. So it's like, you don't expect that for your girls. You don't expect yeah. that um, to your girls to have that same experience that your boys are going to have. But I never felt that when I was growing up. I felt, felt like we were getting the same lessons, but clearly we weren't. You know, So I just feel like I need to give my son all the lessons that even I didn't get because I was a girl, you know? So, you know, even with um, my daughter who is in Alabama, um, I've had to have conversations with her, especially like with Sandra Bland and things that have happened here and she's driving. I've had to have conversations with her on how to handle herself, you know, in you know, in that environment there by herself, you know, she's in Alabama in school, family's not there. Um, and being able to handle herself and Stacy, you know, Sydney, Sydney will speak. Sydney will defend So for our listeners who are faithful listeners to the podcast, you may remember Sydney uh, from our episode where we talked to college students and um, she's very clear about what she thinks and not afraid to yes. share with people her clarity. Which is fantastic. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which is fantastic. Are there mm-hmm. other things that you did to teach the kids um, um, resistance, Kenise? Um, Some of the things that I've done is um, purposely through, again, organizations, we've had, we've had sessions to mm. where we talk about bias. Mm-hmm. Um, I've provided them opportunities to freely speak to whomever they need to speak with and to speak with me, they can come to me and say just about anything with no judgment. And I will have conversations with them. Their dad's very involved. Their dad will have, has had conversations 
constant conversations with them, um, teaching them what they need to do and how to handle themselves mm-hmm. um, as well. And again, it's um, important that um, they have that relationship with, with their dad as well to talk mm-hmm. with them. So bef- uh, primarily the affinity groups, having conversations, mm-hmm. um, exposure from a very wee age of being a baby um, is something that I've done. It's good. So Faith, you mentioned about being mama bear and being protective. And um, in the middle of your comments there, while the audience can't see, I can see that Denise was very uh, demonstrative and um, resonated with what Faith said about mama bear. And I think what we know is that um, we will hurt somebody mm-hmm. behind our children. Like straight up, I will windmill you, right? And so um, I guess part of what I'm wondering is how you've managed to not windmill somebody, to kind of manage your own reactions in the midst of what you see is injustice towards your children. I think for me, it's the reaction and the effect that it has on my child. Mm. So that if somebody is doing or saying something around one of my kids that I think is um, inappropriate, offensive, disrespectful to them as a person or to me as, as their parent, um, you know, I feel like, of course, if I'm there witnessing it, I'm going to stop it. I'm going to mm-hmm. address it right then on the spot. But what really kind of takes me over, I guess, the edge with those kind of situations is then talking to my kids. And f- if I find out in the conversation with my children that this event had a bigger effect on them than I thought it did, it will take me back to that person. Mm-hmm. To my- finish, continue the conversation, because mm-hmm. I feel like if, if uh, you know, I want to believe that, of course, we can't stop things from happening to our kids. But what I really want my kids to understand is their reaction to it is really all that matters. As long as these little, um, you know, these little subliminal messages of white uh, white superiority and supremacy and the idea that Black people are inferior don't go in, then obviously it can't have the effect that 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 it's wanting to have mm-hmm. so i really try to give my kids i guess like build an armor their own armor so mm-hmm. they don't let messages like that in nice. you know um because i obviously we can't stop things from happening to them mm-hmm. to them but i really want them to recognize when someone says something microaggressive and call them on it let, I want my kids to have the voice to call people on their bullshit the way that people should call them on that same thing if they're doing yeah. something like that. You so, know, so I want you to be able to recognize this. I don't want I don't want it to always be that my kids tell me a story about something and, and I immediately realize that was that was extremely racist what he said to you. What did you say in response? I I'm hoping that their response would be what I would have said if I were there. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that they're learning the lessons to speak up for themselves. And I know that it takes so long for you to, as an adult, it takes so long for you to find your voice. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, as, as women, especially not just in the classroom and at work, but just everywhere in the bedroom in your marriage, you know, it takes so long for us to get the voice to tell people what we want and what we're going to accept in our lives. And I kind of want my kids to have that long before I got it. I understand. What about you, Kanice, about kind of um, um, trying to manage your own emotions in the midst of injustice towards your children? Um, It was a it was it's been very difficult. I I really I didn't realize until recently the impact that all recent incidents have had on me until I became a part of the diversity and inclusion committee Mm -hmm. where. there was an email that went out to everyone within the school district and uh, we had to apply to be a part of this committee. Um, I think he had hundreds of applications and about 20 of us were accepted to be a part of this diversity and inclusion committee. Um, And so the first day we introduced ourselves and we had to say, why were we here? When it came to me, I cried. Mm. It was just, it was amazing. I cried because I shouldn't have to be there. 
Mm. I should not have to be there. And that upset, it is upsetting me now. Mm. That I should not have to be there. Wow. And so this notion no. that is that the world should be a just place. And the fact that you have to be in a room to fight for your children is 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 upsetting. And not just my children, but the children in the community. Mm-hmm. All the babies. Mm-hmm. All the babies. So it really became mm-hmm. emotional. It wasn't because I was sad. I got emotional because I'm there for the children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I think, that, I think that's a huge part of what white people don't understand about us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we have a level of compassion that they don't recognize. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a part of their DNA, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, the humane part, the humanity part of who we are is is so true and so real that when we speak about our own children, we're thinking about the other Black kids in the room, you know, the other Black kids on the block. Because even though my son is not at the school anymore. He is not going to sit in the classroom while they read the N-word. This other child is going to be there. And mm-hmm. every other Black student is going to be subjected to exactly what I was trying to protect my son from. That doesn't make me feel good. You know, um, my son is not going to experience it, but these other kids are. And we as Black women, I think, especially feel responsibility for everybody. It's yes. like growing up, and you're playing outside, anybody's mom could come out and tell you what to do, and you better not even think about not doing it. <laughs> you know, it, it's like that whole mentality, the village. You know, yes. we still have that that village mentality where it takes a village to run, you know, to mm-hmm. raise a child. And right now our village is just starting to wake up. There's so many people in our village that think everything is good. You know, just being able to sit at the table, we should be happy, we should be excited. And, you know, that's just not mm-hmm. enough. It's not going to be enough anymore. Mm-hmm. I definitely relate to the idea that I shouldn't have to be in a in a conference having a conversation with anybody about why my son shouldn't be treated less than anybody else in the classroom. I know, and it's a, it's just you know having to go there, you know, establish the baseline. Where are we now, so that we can measure where we're going to be later on in life? Mm-hmm. You know, later on once we systemically address this. So this is why I feel that being a part of this committee is important because it's not only just teaching; it's embedding processes and being systemic and about the approach mm-hmm. of how the district will be handling um, situations that we're facing now. That's good. So here's my last question for you that I ask everyone. Um, what's your one piece of advice that you would give to white people in making their environment more inclusive for our children? I think one thing that white people can do to make the world, or at least their world, the circles that they run in uh, more inclusive and more equitable is to not just talk about it, but to be about it. Um, you know, you can't, you don't get determined to determine if you're an ally. You don't just get to call yourself that because you're not running around calling people the N word. It takes more to that. It takes more to being an ally than just not being a blatant racist. Mm -hmm. I think that if white people could be the honorable people they think they are, if they could speak up when someone else is being oppressed and not waiting for it to happen to them, I think that white people as as a people, as a group, have a problem with empathy. Because if you're not experiencing it or you don't know somebody directly who's experiencing what everyone is saying is so horrible, then there is a disconnect. Um, and so I think that if white people had the ability to empathize, to... Um, to see to see things from another person's point of view, they would understand what it means to be an ally. And it's not just being a white person who's not a Trump supporter, who doesn't go around using the N-word. Um, an ally is someone who puts themselves in your shoes as if it were them and defends whatever your cause is with the same rigor that they would defend it if, the, if it was their own child. And I think that's, I think that's what is missing. That's a key element that's missing um, in in Caucasians across the board. 
that ability to empathize. Nice. Thank you. What about you, McKinney? I feel that, you know, you always hear the term, often I hear the term is, I don't see color. Mm-hmm. Yes, you should see color, you know. That's the problem. <laughs> that is the problem, is that you're you're ignoring that there are differences and mm-hmm. there's power in differences. Mm-hmm. There's power in differences. There's mm-hmm. power in various cultures. Mm-hmm. There's power in working together and understanding various cultures. So yes, see my color, see my skin, see our skin, see that we have different skins, but there's power in the diversity that we have from the ways that we were raised, from our exposures. So yes, see color. Thank you. It's interesting because that's one of the things that annoys me when white people say that, um, because of course you see color, because you're telling me that you don't see color. And I'm black. They don't run around saying to one another. To white people don't go around saying to other pe- white people, you know, I don't see color. No, of course. And 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 then of course I'm having an. It's completely like you don't see me. Like I'm having a set of experiences that are impacted by the fact that I do have the skin color, and not just for me, but a whole nation of people that has been embedded in who our country is for over 400 years and for you to say that you don't see color is a blatant denial denial well, it allows denial. them to not see us it allows yes. them it gives them permission to not see what we deal with as a people it gives so them permission you- to say you're a part of me and right. that's not true i am a part of me <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a very rich discussion. I'm confident that our listeners are going to glean quite a bit from it as they try to raise their own babies in this crazy world that we're currently living in. Um, and, and so we appreciate your time and your story and your candor. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated the conversation as well. Thank you, Dr. Stacey. This episode was edited by Nikki Anderson. Special thanks to our interns, Amanda Gillette, and other contributors. Our music is provided by Jaffa. Being the Dot is sponsored by davidsdeliciousdelights.com. davidsdeliciousdelights.com. Custom-made, personalized cakes, pies, cookies, and pastries made with a dash of Southern flair. Visit davidsdeliciousdelights.com. And use the coupon code being the dot for 20% off orders of $34.99 or more. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.